Blog Talk Radio. Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly is uh, from MLB.com, Twins beat writer, uh, Do Young Park. Uh, and without any further ado, I'm going to bring him on the air. How are you doing, I'm, go- I'm doing good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Just got back from the longest uh, holiday break seeing family out in Korea so getting back getting used to the cold and everything just bridging the gap to uh, Twins Fest and the Winter Caravan coming up real soon now yeah lots of stuff going on but I I would be remiss if I didn't pick your brain to start out with uh, on what you can tell me about how the Josh Donaldson uh, contract came about well, I mean, I get the sense that, you know, it had been reported for a while, right, that uh, Josh Donaldson was kind of waiting for waiting for teams to meet his number. And uh, it had been speculated in the media for a while that it was going to be in the range of around $100 million. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the Twins deal with Donaldson for the $92 million guaranteed doesn't quite hit that. But it's that fifth-year option that can bring the value of the deal up to $100 million. Uh, that I think also makes a difference for Josh Donaldson. Because, again, a lot of what I think was kind of getting in the way of the bidding among, you know, teams like the Twins, the Braves, the Nationals, the Rangers, and also the conversations is that the guy is 34 years old. Um, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, it's his batted ball numbers have been fantastic. He's hitting the ball as hard as he always has. He is barreling the ball up and squaring it up and hitting it out as, frequently as he has throughout his career. And, but I think the, uh, the prospect of giving a guy four years uh, is something that really did, at age 34, is something that a lot of teams really did balk at. And so with the Twins, though, it's a fit at this moment and down the line that's kind of perfect for the team if you think about it. Right now, you had an even the corner infield. You can push Miguel Sano over to first base. So Sano had been kind of a net negative at the hot corner for a couple of years now for the Twins. And you get John Stonington, a big defensive upgrade over at the hot corner as well. And then, because Nelson Cruz's contract is going to last after the 2020 season, you get some flexibility at designated hitters, whether it's Miguel Sano, whether it's Josh Donaldson, or whoever else will hit into that spot. The Twins do have landing spots where Jeff Hill will be counted on to produce at the hot corner at third base for the time being, but there's also flexibility positionally down the line. Um, to kind of navigate the age 36, age 37, and maybe 38 seasons where the deal might get a little hairier. So I think all that kind of went into this. Is is in in your sense? Do you is it like the last part of it, the contract is it's going to be what it is going to be, and they're just counting on the next couple of years to uh, be 
be uh, upper level type of per- performance out of Donaldson, or do they think he can perform really well all four years or or five if they pick up the option? Well, it's so hard to project that, right? And I think that kind of gets down to the gist of why this why this uh, sweepstakes for Donaldson went on as long as it did between uh, the final few teams in the bidding for his services. Now, there's not, you know, there's aging curves, and uh, there's aging curves and, you know, kind of traditional thoughts and kind of calculations and projections on aging that you can, that that has kind of dictated deals and valuation of players for the last however long. Uh, but you can, you also have the exceptions like Nelson Cruz, who at age 39 just posted the best season of his career. Um, and one thing that is kind of promising about what Josh Donaldson brings to the table, by all accounts, he takes impeccable care of his body. And much like Nelson Cruz, he is somebody that as he, as he is aged, as, his, uh, as, his, as, as he's gotten more experience in the major leagues and as he's kind of built up the years under his belt, his batted ball numbers, which I just mentioned in the last answer, haven't really receded. Nelson Cruz is still among the premier exit velocity hard hit rate guys in the game, according to all these new metrics that are coming out. Same thing with Josh Donaldson. He's all the way up there with them, and that's something that hasn't really even receded over the last few years outside of that 18 season uh, where he was injured, and that kind of hampered everything that he could do. He's still hitting the crap out of the ball, and you look actually into the numbers, and not only is he still whacking fastballs as he has throughout his career, he's also catching up to breaking balls and kind of sitting on those a little bit better. So there is reason to believe, obviously, uh, that over the next few years, over the first few years of this deal, like you were saying, that's why that's where the Twins are hoping to extract the most value out of it. Um, but and anything really, and especially the fourth year of that deal, I think is kind of gravy when you're looking at somebody, a deal that's taking you into a guy's age 37 season. But at the same time, there is reason in my mind, just looking at the underlying numbers, to believe that you know there might not be as steep of a regression as I think a lot of people might be predicting from them toward the end of the field. Now, obviously, that's impossible to project, and only time will tell on that. But that's something I got in mind as I examined kind of the finances and the lifetime of this deal. Um, as a Twins fan, it it just blew my mind that they would go to this level uh as as a beat writer did this signing surprise you in that how far the twins were willing to go no no not at all um because we're at a stage where not just with the so backing up to the start of the off season where Derek Falvey and Fab Levine were saying okay if our window is open, we are going to make an aggressive move. We're going to make impact additions to this team. Um, I understand. I'm a Minnesotan myself, right? I grew up here. I understand the skepticism, with um, which a lot of fans around this market in particular will view the Twins, the Timberwolves, the Vikings, you know, whatever language of that sort does permeate the, does permeate the media sphere, right? Um, it, it's natural. It's a natural response. But at the same time, you do also have to keep in mind that, the state of this team right now, um, where they produced demonstrable success last season, were among the elites of the game, literally set major league records. Um, in based on most metrics, on both hitting side and pitching side, one of the best rounded rosters in the game. And then the core of that roster is cost control, 
it's locked down, it's young, it's producing. I, I would argue that this is a, a roster situation and a situation for the franchise that we really haven't seen here, especially not in the target field era, where after 2010 and 2011, it's been a really big, you know, dip, as I'm sure you know. And mm-hmm. one reason it, do, it really doesn't surprise me is because, you know, after the, uh, after the wild card appearance two seasons ago, the Twins came back and, you know, it wasn't a splashy thing, but they did make the addition in the starting rotation in the bullpen to go into 2018, the year after that, with the highest pitching in franchise history. And that's almost, that's certainly, we're, we're actually on pace to, not on pace, the Twins' payroll obligations for opening day right now, they're thinking the 138 million range, if I'm remembering right, which would shatter that record too. And so I think they have put their money where their mouths have been the one other time they've been able to do so in this kind of target field era. But even that was nothing compared to kind of the position the team finds itself in now. So, no, it didn't surprise me at all that the uh, Twins felt the need to make this impact addition just because the roster is in the right place to do that and the excitement for the club has not been at this level in quite a while. Okay, uh, let me ask you uh, the other signing. Uh, what was your thoughts on the Miguel Sano uh, extension? Oh, I, I was a big fan of that. Uh, to get somebody, it's it's obviously a high a higher risk uh, extension than say for Max Kepler or Jorge Polanco, right? Just based on not just the injury history, but the uh, history of underperformance um, in a couple of years of. Miguel five in the major league. At the same time, though, the upside that you saw in the second half of last season when he was healthy, when he had his mechanics on lock, when he wasn't kind of hampered by not just the heel injury, but also the kind of recovery and reacclimation process after that injury, you really saw the kind of potential what he could do. 34 homers in 105 games. Um, you extrapolate that to a full season, that's like a 50, maybe 60 homer hitter if he gets hot. You know, obviously, that's not to say that's what you should expect from Miguel Sano, but that's obviously the kind of upside that he has not only had in the past, but he has grown into a lot more, especially last season. And I think what this indicates uh, for the Twins on a deal that guarantees them an average of $10 million a year is that they're willing to accept what they view as a lower risk because of what they've seen from Miguel and how he turned the corner after they punted it down to Fort Myers in 2018, how he kind of took charge of his body. He uh, worked with the team and he worked with uh, strength and conditioning staff and he hired personnel in the Dominican Republic over the off season to really take charge of this. And we saw him at target field yesterday for that press conference. The dude looked great. And I think it's just one of those things where the twins really do think that he has turned a corner in terms of not just his performance, but also in everything off the field, the preparation, the taking care of himself, the diet, the surrounding himself with the right people and everything that they feel this is an investment worthy of making. Because again, the upside is so high. If you can get Miguel Sano hitting 40 to 50 homers with a reasonably solid batting average for $10 million a year, that's a steal. That's what they're counting on. And that's, something that I do think that he'll be able to play into for at least one, maybe two, maybe three of the seasons of this contract. Um, in your opinion, do you think he'll be able to play first base adequately or come 2021, will he be strictly a DH? 
I think uh, I think we're all going to find that out together, aren't we? We uh, have kind of a minimal sample size to glean off of. Uh, over the five years of his major league career, he's only played, I believe, 11 games at first base. So this is kind of all uncharted territory that we're moving in together. It's, I don't think it's going to be like the right field experiment. I think uh, it's a much easier transition for Sano. In that sense, I think his uh, body is obviously in a much better place. Um, I, he, he's obviously got great hands, right? And that's one thing you want to look for over there. I think there'll be some sort of acclimation period, obviously, just because he doesn't have all that experience over there. But I think kind of the footwork and the range and the speed, which are really kind of what hampered him over his third base, are obviously going to be much less of an issue over there. Um, and so, you know, I think I think he does. He obviously has the physical tools to succeed, and he's been hard at work last season and this off season in um, working at both third base and first base in case of kind of this contingency, which did eventually come to fruition. So I think I'll have a much better answer on that once we're in spring training. I've seen him taking a lot over that, but I don't have any reason to believe that it's not going to work out so far. Okay. Uh, twins fans uh, are uh, not that they're not excited about the Josh Donaldson signing and uh, Miguel Sano's signing, but they're worried about the pitching staff. Do you see another move on the horizon for the Twins, or in your mind, are we pretty much done? No, I'd be shocked if they're done. Uh, I'm going to hedge that by saying I am not convinced that a move will come before opening day or before pitchers and catchers report for spring training in under a month. But I would be surprised mm-hmm. if the Twins are in the postseason in October with the current pitching staff that they have on hand right now. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to like. There's, I, everybody says, okay, every, I think the Twins' need for a pitcher has been really overblown. It's that, okay, a front-end starting pitcher takes this starting rotation from good to great. And especially one with playoff experience will go a long way in helping anchor this rotation in the playoffs. Is this rotation as currently constructed bad? Heck no. Is this rotation as currently constructed mediocre? Absolutely not. It is a good rotation that among that even last season uh, was among the best in the, in the American League and the major leagues in a lot of categories that you with which you'll go through and evaluate. I think a lot of that is lost because of kind of the inconsistency and the frustrations of Martin Perez and of obviously the playoff disappointment where the Twins didn't have the answer to whatever the Yankees were throwing at them, both offensively and defensively. Then again, neither would, nor would many teams that would have gone to Yankee Stadium in that series. Uh, and you have that starting rotation, again, by most metrics, one of the best in the American League. And you've taken out Martin Perez, and you have replaced him with Homer Bailey and also Rich Hill, right? But further down the line, you got Rich Hill coming in, and he is that guy with the playoff experience with a strong pedigree, with everything, age 40, coming off the arm surgery, it is a risk. But it, it, it is also an upgrade to what was a good rotation from last year. With that said, if you're turning to Jose Barrios and Jake Odorizzi and Michael Pineda, none of whom have any substantial playoff experience, I do think leaning on them too heavily and, being, and looking at that and saying, okay, we're going to be fine is a mistake. And I think Rich Hill – you know, like I, I just mentioned the playoff experience and the high upside, but there's also super high risk. He's 40 years old and he's coming off major arm surgery. Um, with that in mind, I think 
the Twins are going to have a chance, if they don't make a move before the start of the season, to really evaluate what they've got in their young guys, um, in Randy Dobnak, in Lewis Thorpe, in, uh, in Devin Smeltzer, and then further down the line in Bruce Gratterall, in Yolanda Duran, and Jordan Balazovic, and potentially maybe even by the trade deadline. You have an idea of, okay, here is how bad our need is. Here is the caliber of pitcher that we need up there. Because I don't know. Maybe Randy Dobnak continues to be elite. Maybe Jose Barrios takes that next step and becomes some sort of world beater. And you don't want to have to overreact before the season and pay off like top one, top two, top three prospects to get somebody that would, you know, maybe be gravy where other needs might present themselves over the course of the season, right? So that's what I kind of wonder about. And that's what I kind of worry about. The thing is, Josh Donaldson really does help the Twins kind of mitigate the absolute need for something at this immediate moment because you can do what the Twins did last year where for most of the first half, they were just kind of stealing out their guys, seeing what they had, pinpointing their strengths, pinpointing their weaknesses, and then they went and attacked at the trade deadline. And I think Donaldson especially really helps them kind of set themselves up to do that again in, you know, an American League Central that's going to be competitive, sure, but not nearly as competitive as, say, like the American League East. Are you there? Yep. Uh, I thought I lost you. Uh, last question uh, is uh, on paper, what do you consider the twins' strengths and things that they need to work on? Uh, strengths, obviously, offense and bullpen. I think uh, you look at the you look at where the uh, where the offensive depth chart is right now. You look at where the bullpen depth chart is right now. It is hard to argue that those aren't going to be some of the better, if not the best, groups in the major leagues. I mean, you have a bullpen that was by many metrics the best in baseball in last year's second half. You're bringing everybody back. Plus, you're adding Tyler Swifford. Plus, you're adding a year of experience. Plus, you're adding another offseason and season of work with West Jackson, which. Everybody saw what happened with Wisconsin last year and how he really did bring out the best of a lot of these guys that have been floating around, like Trevor May and Tyler Duncan, and turned them into fire-breathing monsters in the bullpen. I'm not worried about that. And I think, I think you know, for as much as I said, yeah, the don't worry so much about the starting rotation, that is still kind of the Achilles heel of this team, right? Just because you don't know what to expect. Obviously, you can expect Jake Odorizzi and Jose Barrios to be good, great, with Michael Pineda coming back, you can expect him to be solid. You have no idea what you're going to get out of Rich Hill coming off that surgery. The upside is great, like I said, but you really don't know. Homer Bailey, another high upside guy. They think they can fix. They think there are some things that they can tinker with to fix, much like they uh, had an idea for Martin Perez last year. Perez was fine for a while, and then he kind of, you know, fell apart. And that's something that you don't know whether that's going to happen with Homer Bailey or not. Obviously, they have their ideas, and we have to give them the benefit of the doubt until, you know, they're able to implement those ideas and see whether they work or not. Beyond that, they obviously got a lot of young, inexperienced, high upside guys. So there's a lot of ways that could go right. There's also a lot of ways that could go not right. And so if you're looking ahead to what the Twins should be concerned about or focused on this season, yes, it's figuring out what you got in your starters and then figuring out, okay, what are the best possible ways we can adjust accordingly to what we see out of them as the season progresses, and as we have a better idea of what they're bringing up. 
All right, Doe. I want to thank you for uh, coming on. It's always great to talk. Uh, We'll have to do this again later on this spring. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, You have a good day now. You too. Take care. Yep. Bye.
Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly is Joe Noga. He is a writer for uh, Cleveland.com and also a contributor to the Plains Dealer. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring Joe on and we'll talk some Indians. Joe, how's it going? Going real well. Good to talk to thanks you guys. For making, yeah, thanks for making time. Appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about the Indians. Uh, how, how are things looking uh, January 15th? Uh, January 15th looks a lot like the end of the regular season with the major exception of uh, Corey Kluber not being at the top of the Indians rotation after uh, 10 seasons with the club. The Indians traded him to Texas and got uh, Delano DeShields Jr. and Emmanuel Classe. Uh, Classe really the, uh, the, the focal point of that trade in what was really seen as a salary dump, uh, Kluber's $17.5 million. Uh, salary for the season uh, goes over to Texas. Uh, Class A, a uh, guy who throws uh, triple digits and, you know, uh, really sort of changes the the profile of the Indians' bullpen to uh, more of a power, you know, big arm, uh, hard-throwing uh, back end of that bullpen. Uh, you know, and, and with all the talk uh, surrounding Francisco Lindor in this offseason, uh, this would be the, the ideal time for the Indians to trade somebody like that, but uh, they are holding strong and, and waiting on, uh, you know, the, the, the best offer, I guess. Uh, all indications are that Lindor will open the season with the Indians as their shortstop. Um, were you surprised at all with the Kluber trade? No, not really. Uh, we we, we kind of we felt that if Corey Kluber was going to get traded, that it would probably be, you know, Corey Kluber traded somewhere and Francisco Lindor traded somewhere and they start uh, an earlier rebuild than, than they might've anticipated. But uh, I think, you know, the, the, the move to deal Kluber was, was the right, right thing to do. It just, the, the return seemed a little light. Uh, I don't know if it's that they're not telling us everything that we need to know in terms of his health or, or whatnot, but, uh, you know, he, he did get most of last season off to, to rest and recuperate. He should be, you know, uh, you know, back to full health. If that's, if that's something that at age 34, he's able to do. Uh, I just don't think that a, uh, you know, 22 year old reliever and a, uh, you know, sub league average outfielder, uh, in return is is what you would expect to get from a two time for in exchange for a two time Cy Young award winner. Um, on, another guy I was curious about uh, if he's going to come back or if his time with the Indians is over is Jason Kipnis. What can you tell me about about him? Uh, all indications are that he will not be back with the club uh, in in any way. They've moved on. They have uh, signed. Cesar Hernandez to a one-year $6.25 million deal. Uh, Hernandez spent, what, seven seasons in Philadelphia and, you know, five highly productive seasons for the Phillies. Uh, He fits in somewhere towards the top of that Indians lineup and, uh, you know, he gives them four switch hitters on the infield and 
uh, a high on base guy, a guy that can really run the bases and, and looks like he will fit really well with what Terry Francona likes to do uh, offensively towards the top of that lineup. Uh, Jason Kipnis, of course, you know, his, his entire career with the Indians, uh, a high draft pick by the Indians out of Arizona state. And, you know, at the center of some of the franchise's biggest moments over the last 10 years, uh, it's just, uh, he was, he was due to make a boatload of money in terms of uh, if they would have picked up his, his option, I believe it was a $16 million option. Uh, they declined that. They, they bought him out for about 2.5. And uh, it doesn't sound like there's going, going to be a lot of chance of, of, of them agreeing on a, a number in terms of a, a free agent deal. Um, uh, the, speaking of the Shields, uh, is, is he uh, going to be a starter for the Indians or come off the bench in your mind? I, you know, I, the Indians right now have nine outfielders on their uh, 40-man roster, and Delano wow. DeShields is is projected at uh, you know a 1.3 WAR for next year. Uh, last year he he hit 249 with a, a 672 OPS in in 118 games. He's been you know up and down even at, at even at five years in in his major league career. He's been up and down. Uh, to to AAA, I, you know, with young Oscar Mercado developing in center field, I I can't see how you take innings away from Oscar Mercado in center field. So you got to figure they they brought the Shields in to, to possibly play left or platoon there with Jake Bowers. Uh, you know, the Shields a right-handed hitter, Bowers a left-handed hitter. Uh, it it's just it's hard for me to see the Shields starting over. Uh, some of these young guys who who they gave a chance to last year and and were you know pretty much pretty productive in terms of, of Mercado. Uh, uh, speaking of Mercado, is is it too early for an extension in your mind, or could we be seeing the Indians spending some money on on Oscar Mercado? I uh, I don't see Oscar Mercado signing an extension you know this year or next year. Uh, you know, possibly when he gets close to arbitration, they might try to lock him up, but they, that, that doesn't fit with Chris Antonetti's, uh, you know, sort of game plan in, in, in that regard. Uh, if, I, if I'm Antonetti, I'm looking more towards uh, guys like Mike Clevenger and Shane Bieber in terms of locking them up for long-term, uh, buying out their arbitration years. But I, I can't see, you know, with two years of pre-arb left, you've got, you've got Mercado on a, you know, on a steal basically right now at, at the major league minimum. So no, n- not, not an extension right now for Mercado. You, you're talking about Oscar Mercado. You're not talking about Ronald Lacuna or any one of these other, you know, highly touted uh, big time uh, prospects who came in. This is a kid who he was brought over at the end of 2018 at the trade deadline into the organization. And in 2019, uh, you know, he sort of really came on in spring training, was impressive, and they brought him up to made his major league debut in May. And he, he's a he's a young, controllable piece uh, that that performed, I think, higher than expectations last year. So I think they're going to let him, you know, see how he goes in the next couple of seasons before talking about any sort of uh, a contract. Uh, the 
the pitching for the Indians is, is obviously going to be their strength. How uh, good do you think that starting rotation has a chance to be? I, I still think that this is the, the best starting five or starting rotation in the division uh, in, in the American League Central. Top to bottom, uh, you know, you're looking at Carlos Carrasco, Mike Clevenger, Shane Bieber uh, as, your, as your top three. And uh, these are guys who historically, uh, Clevenger in particular, uh, have owned the American League Central uh, teams, uh, you know, particularly teams like Kansas City and Detroit and, and Chicago um, throughout their careers. So, you know, I, I, and it, this is also a rotation that has depth and beyond just uh, young guys like Zach Plesac and Aaron Savali, who both came up and made their major league debuts last season and both contributed in major ways to the Indians winning 93 games. Uh, I, I, I also see, you know, a couple of left-handers, young guys, Logan Allen, who was brought over in the Trevor Bauer trade, uh, and Scott Moss, uh, also, you know, acquired during the season. Uh, these are t- that, that would give, <laughs> that would give the Indians something that they haven't had since about the 2017 season, which would be a regular left-handed starter in the rotation for the, uh, the number of lefties that the Indians face in the American league central throughout the season. Uh, particularly those guys over in Chicago have uh, a lot of left-handed starters. Uh, The Indians have none and have had none. Uh, I think this is a rotation that will give you, you know, three, at least three, maybe four guys possibly who could go 200 innings this year. And and that's saying a lot. Okay. Uh, How's the bullpen looking? And, and speaking of that, how is the new uh, three-batter rule going to affect Terry Francona? Well, it's already affecting Terry Francona. I'm sure it's giving him uh, uh, several sleepless nights. This is uh, <laughs> You're talking about Terry Francona, the guy who, uh, along with Mickey Calloway in 2016, uh, really revolutionized or, or started a trend of, of having these, uh, these early bullpen uh, games in the, in the playoffs with Andrew Miller. Uh, and you're talking about a guy who will not hesitate to make a pitching change to find the matchups that he likes, and, and he's very knowledgeable and, and very skilled at doing that, and this takes away his ability to do that in, in some ways. I, I don't think that this rule is going to uh, really have as much impact as a lot of people are, are sort of banging the drum about it, it, it sort of you know, this changing the game and all that. I think you're going to see it crop up once in a while uh, in, in, you know, longer games, late inning games, things like that. But for the most part, I, I don't think uh, uh, it, it's going to have that huge of an impact until we get down to the playoffs and, and later in the year. Um, with that said, the Indians bullpen, uh, like I said before, with the addition of Manuel Class A, uh, and if Jeff Jeffrey Rodriguez can return, to, and, and do what he did, uh, you know, for, for parts of last season. Uh, this is a bullpen that now transforms from uh, sort of soft tossing, you know, pitchers, pitchers, uh, going out there and, and getting strikeouts. Uh, they, they've lost, obvi- obviously lost uh, Tyler Clippard, who did an amazing job for him last year, to the Twins in free agency. But now you're going to be running guys out there, 6'2", 6'3", 
who throw, you know, 96, 97, 98 miles an hour consistently. And that's something the Indians haven't really had the last couple of seasons. They've had, you know, more strike you out pitcher kind of guys as opposed to blow you away strikeout guys. Um, It'll be a different look. And, you know, I I think uh, Carl Willis and uh, Terry Francona and, um, you know, everybody associated with the club uh, is we're looking forward to it. The bullpen's always sort of a, a question that's up in the air as we're heading towards spring training. But by the end of the, by the end of spring training, things usually work themselves out. Um, when it comes to Carlos Carrasco, he came back from uh, leukemia and, and, and did a pretty good job overall. Is that even a question mark anymore about how he's recovering and, and being able to, to be the, the pitcher he was before leukemia? Well, you know, uh, he he didn't put up these these dazzling numbers and carried the Indians to you know obviously fell short of the playoffs at the end of the year last year. Uh, so yeah, he he performed the way you would expect somebody coming back from dealing with leukemia to to perform. He gave up a few home runs, uh, pitched in some big innings. I think the biggest thing was that he was out there pitching, and and that was the biggest plus you could take away from that. Uh, I think this year. I've I've pretty much consistently said, and with the with the depth in pitching, starting pitching that that the Indians have, I think uh, Terry Francona might be more inclined to leave guys like Zach Plesac or Aaron Savali, who are still very young and very unproven at the major league level, to um, you know start the season maybe at AAA, and and leave Carrasco in the rotation, and then maybe as the season progresses and you bring Plesak, Savali, uh, you know, Moss or Logan Allen up, you might move Carrasco and, and put him in the bullpen as, as a guy who can come in and give you big innings and big outs in situations where you need to win games. Carrasco has pitched out of the bullpen uh, before he, he moved to the bullpen when he couldn't get his head right as a young pitcher and and then basically, uh, you know, the, the staff came to Francona and said, look, he's ready to go back into the rotation. And, and that's when he sort of took off in, in 2015, 2016. So you, you look at, you look at uh, Carrasco as providing you uh, flexibility, versatility, and depth in, in, as, a, as a, a piece in your rotation and as a, a reliever. Uh, and all indications are right now that he's he's going to be healthy and he's going to be ready to come back and contribute. Uh, how would you uh, handicap the tribe's uh, offense? Uh, handicap is a is a good way to uh, you know describe <laughs> my my feelings towards the offense. Uh, I'll tell you this: we saw flashes and sparks of Jose Ramirez busting out of, you know, whatever slump he endured for the 2018 season, uh, second half of that, and, and, you know, parts of the 2019 season. Uh, he's, he's, there's still Jose Ramirez in there, and I think he's the biggest key to the Indians' offense. You've got uh, Carlos Santana, who, who hits the AL Central as, as good as anybody, uh, you know, in baseball. He's, he's lifetime career, you know, numbers in the AL Central are, are excellent. Uh, same with Francisco Lindor. He 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 destroys you know 
the the young pitching and the uh, he loves playing in those ballparks. Um, as long as you've got Francisco Lindor at the top of that lineup, and you're able to put, you know, Cesar Hernandez in there somewhere, uh, probably batting second, uh, Santana third, Franmil Reyes fourth, and you know Franmil Reyes, you don't overlook him and. Yeah, he's going to strike out 140 times this year, but he's going to hit you 35 home runs, and he's going to do that with power to all parts of uh, of the ballpark. And he's uh, he's an impressive hitter uh, in in a very in, in a you know in a season and a half worth of uh, San Diego and, and Cleveland. He's he's the real deal in terms of just a big man that can get a hold of the ball and, and drive it out of the ballpark, and that's something the Indians need there in that number four spot. Um, and, and I like, I like having to drop Jose Ramirez maybe in that, in that batting order down to that, his natural number five spot. I think he'll be a a big run producer for him there. Okay. Uh, my last question and then I'll let you go. Uh, I handicapped the, the AL central in your mind, uh, with the Indians pitching, they're always going to be right there. Uh, where where do you uh, see this division playing out this year? Well, I think pitching is the is the big premium in the division. Uh, obviously, uh, Detroit, Kansas City are you know well into tear down rebuild mode, and we're not going to worry about them. It's it's a three team race really, and and I see the Indians' experience helping. I see their pitching depth definitely helping if they can if they can stay healthy healthier than they did last year. And I think, you know, baseball is a game of run production and uh, run prevention. I think the Indians are going to do a really good job, particularly with their defensive infield uh, of, of run prevention. Uh, I don't know that they are going to produce enough runs to hang with Minnesota. So uh, particularly with the addition of Josh Donaldson uh, in, in free agency, I think uh, that that makes Minnesota's offense elite. And at some point they're going to make a move during the season to add uh, an arm. I'm sure of it. So I would put Minnesota first. I would put Cleveland there uh, very close and pushing them. And I would put the White Sox very improved, very much a challenge. I mean, this is uh, the Indians only had a losing record against one team in the division last year, and it wasn't the Twins; it was the White Sox. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think uh, the White Sox will will push, will will contend, but I don't see them having enough, uh, you know, pitching to to hang with the with the top two. I I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think the Indians and and the Twins are going to battle it out at the top. Kind of just like well, last if you, year. If you remember, at this time last year, I said, you know, I I really said that the, I thought the Twins were were really improved. I, I had suspicions about their pitching, but I said I thought that the the Twins would push the Indians to the last week of the season in terms of uh, the division title, and you know, I was, I was almost tra- I, I was almost exactly right. It was just the other way around. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, thank you for uh, the preview. Uh, I I'm can't wait for spring training. It should be another fun season, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime this season. Sounds good. Take care, guys.
Yep. Thanks a lot. Bye.
Our next guest on Minnesota Sports Weekly is Luke Braun of Of Locked On Vikings. So, uh, without any further ado, I'm going to bring Luke on and we'll talk about the Vikings. Luke, how are you? Hey, how's it going, man? Excellent, excellent. I appreciate us finally being able to find a time that works for both of us. (laughs) Yeah. Um, my first question, let, let's first talk about the Saints game. Uh, what sure. were some of your takeaways uh, about that? Uh, for, my first question has to be, was that offensive interference? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing everybody's talking about, I guess. Uh, my, my take on that has been uh, that less contact has been called, more contact has gone uncalled. Pass interference is a mess. It's a subjective call. And it's definitely within the range of being questionable. I definitely understand the vitriol coming from Saints fans. They're a little sensitive to pass interference. It's kind of been a thing. Uh, But I I think that that's a call that could have been made on the field, justifiably wasn't, and definitely couldn't be overturned. So you weren't surprised at all that it wasn't interfered? I didn't think that that they would turn it over. Yeah, that, but that's but by, by the letter uh, of the law, it could have been called. Um, speaking of uh, taking last week out of the out of your memory, <laughs> what was your thoughts on on uh, on Kirk Cousins' performance against the Saints? Um, I mean, Kirk played very well. I I thought that, if I remember, there were a couple of of moments in that Saints game where he missed somebody downfield or, you know, kind of had a a vision issue or something like that, kind of, you know, threw an ill-advised ball. But otherwise, I think, you know, the moment that everybody's going to remember, probably rightfully so, is that 43-yard pass to Adam Thielen at the end of the game where, you know, that that set them up, you know, at point-blank range in overtime. That's the throw that, for Kirk Cousins' entire career, He's never made that throw, and that kind of works. It does a lot of work to kind of um, undo the narrative about Kirk Cousins and big games and big spots and all that stuff. It, it, it doesn't get any bigger than that spot, and I think that's going to be one of the most memorable throws of his career when it's all said and done. Okay, uh, just because we have to, uh, let's move on to the <laughs> 49ers game. Yeah, uh, I got to do it. It was it was uh let's just say in a word ugly oh yeah what was what was your impression cuz they were down only down 14 to 10 late in the first half and then all hell broke loose uh <laughs> what if you, if you could uh put a few sentences what happened in your mind that made a 14-10 game turn into a 27-10 game. What would that, 
those uh, thoughts for you? Yeah, so part of it was Kirk Cousins had a much poorer game than he did against the Saints. Uh, he missed a lot of available throws. You might say, yeah, but there was a lot of pressure. There are plenty of moments without pressure where the throw was open and available and he declined it and checked down instead. Pressure might have gotten in his head. That is kind of something as an NFL quarterback you have to be able to prevent. Um, but in terms of that pressure, I mean, of course, the offensive line gets absolutely destroyed, right? Riley Reef, Pat Elfline both have two of their worst games of the season. And uh, – what really happened is that the 49ers run something called the wide nine, which is their defensive alignment. If you go watch any of the plays from that game, if you can bear it, uh, you'll see Nick Bosa lining up way, way further outside than say the Vikings do with, with Daniel Hunter or Everson Griffin. And the advantage of that and putting all that space between defensive linemen is that it encourages in pass protection it encourages the offensive line to be very one-on-one. It, it, it spaces out all of the pass protection assignments. So a one-on-one matchup is a little bit easier for an offensive line when everything's tight and bunched together. You know, if you get beat to one side, you can maybe just push them into the other guy and they knock together and then they're, you know, it works. Uh, but when everything is so spread out, you're really on an island. And so, you know, D Ford or DeForest Buckner on an island with Pat Elfline, Vikings just don't have the offensive line talent to keep up with that. Not many people do. That's why the 49ers defensive line has been so good this year. Okay. Uh, speaking of the offensive line, is that the worst game they played this season? I don't think so. I think they had a well I'd have to look it up in terms of actual pressure certainly it was an awful game uh they gave up pressure on 17 of 35 dropbacks that is obliterating season averages even for this unit uh and this was a unit that had had plenty of good games throughout the season as well um it it was I I would guess that the offensive line probably had worse games against the Packers and Zadarius Smith and all those guys um Mm-hmm. But, yeah, suffice it to say, especially on that left side with Reef and Elfline, two guys that could be playing elsewhere in 2020, uh, that, that was a, a, an abysmal showing. And part of it was just not having the talent. Part of it was the way that the 49ers scheme really highlighting that lack of talent in ways that other teams can't really accomplish. Um, my question is, in your opinion, who uh, – you study a lot of tape is you mentioned Riley Reef and, uh, and uh, Pat Elfline might not be back in 20, uh, 2020. Uh, is that something that you expect or is that just an out of the box type of uh, take? Well, I think it's possible. Riley Reese, I think if he were to be cut, he would save $8 million against the cap. That's a problem the Vikings are going to have to deal with. There are a few different options of how to deal with it. Riley Reese is one of them. Uh, Pat Elfline, there's not much reason to cut him. He, he probably will be in Minnesota in 2020. But it would be surprising to me if there weren't another person competing for that left guard spot, whether it's uh, Drew Samia, a rookie from this year who basically redshirted, moving him from the right side to the left side, having him compete with Pat Elfline or trying to draft somebody or pick up a free agent to compete. But if Elfline is just anointed the starting job, I, I would be pretty surprised with the season that he had in, in 2019. It was pretty bleak. Um, on, a, on a positive note, uh, what was your thoughts on the running back? Of course you have Dalvin Cook, but then you also had Alexander Madison. What, and and uh, I, his name is Mr. 
He started against Chicago. Uh, Mike Boone. Mike Mike Boone, yes. Uh, what was your thoughts on the running back position as a whole this year? I mean, it's incredibly deep, right? For, so uh, Delvin Cook is still, in my opinion, one of the best running backs in the league, just one of the most talented ones. Obviously, the returns on that are limited if you can't block for him, which the Vikings could some days and, could some, and couldn't some other days. Uh, but, you know, when you could block for him or even just there are some games where he just kind of took over and he would turn a two-yard loss into a 12-yard gain. I think of the games at Detroit and at Dallas where I think two of his best uh, and, and those games were games that I don't think you win with other running backs. So there's definitely some value to Dalvin Cook. And, of course, this offseason is the way his contract works. is the time to start talking about an extension, and that's going to be an offseason talker of whether or not that's a smart thing to do. But, yeah, behind him, Alexander Madison, uh, the rookie, kind of a one-cut-and-go-thump-somebody kind of guy, a little bit less dynamic than Dalvin Cook, but worked very well as a relief running back. And, of course, you know, Mike Boone as a backup, um, I, I think he still makes some vision mistakes, and he certainly is somebody – he only started playing running back his senior year of college, so I think this was his third season at the position, and you can kind of tell. Um, and, and hopefully that's the kind of thing that could improve. But he has all the athleticism in the world for it, and that creates a, a good kind of core unit of people. Amir Abdullah, I believe, is an undrafted – or an unrestricted free agent this year. Uh, he uh-huh. had a pretty good game kick returning against the 49ers, but he has a fumble problem and he's getting up there. I would be surprised if the Vikings re-signed him. Okay, on the defensive side, is it a foregone conclusion that Xavier Rhodes is going to be cut? Foregone conclusion? Absolutely not. Uh, he's definitely one of the options. I think you can also save like something like $8.3 million against the cap if you cut him. And I think his contract was structured specifically in this way where, you know, this is the time when, okay, there's enough, you know, there's not so much guaranteed money where he, you can't cut him. And if he's playing more poorly than you thought when you signed him to this, this extension in 2017, then, you know, you can start to make that decision. Um, it's definitely an option and it's not the worst option, but I don't think it's a, a foregone conclusion. Of course, you know, the Vikings also are, have uh, Trey Waynes. His contract expires in March. So you, you need to keep some of those guys. Which ones they are will probably be a decision based on cap and who gets what money and all that stuff. Uh, but it's definitely possible. I wouldn't say foregone, especially just because, you know, the, that organization has a lot of respect for Xavier Rhodes. And they also don't blame Xavier Rhodes for a lot of the catches that he gave up. They uh, point more to scheme and, and kind of, uh, you know, more strategic errors. And Xavier Rhodes did what the coaches told him, and it gave up a catch. They kind of don't see that as Rhodes' fault. Okay. Uh, in your, would you resign Trey Wins? I, that's, that's a question I haven't looked deeply enough into it to really understand. Uh, you know, up until this point, my opinion on this would be let Trey Wins walk. He will probably get a big contract somewhere, get you a big compensatory pick, and then you have Rhodes and Hughes and Alexander, and that's your your cornerback uh, group. But after the 2019 season and how poorly Rhodes played, personally, I don't know if I would still do that. I think you're picking one of Rhodes and Waynes to hang around, and then you can you know re-sign Mackenzie Alexander, or maybe you let both Waynes and Alexander walk and try to get a new cornerback. Either way, somebody in that group's going to look different, but you're not going to lose all four of them and have to rebuild the group from scratch. They will find a way to keep somebody. We just don't really know who it is. Um, I think Rhodes is probably the best option in my opinion, though, and that probably allows you to keep Waynes and Mackenzie Alexander. I think I'd take that move. 
Um, how about up front? Uh, of course, is it a foregone conclusion that uh, Everson Griffin is back? Is back, again, not a foregone conclusion, but I would call that more likely. He wants to be back, uh, and he might even take a pay cut to do so. It seems the way that he's talked about the team, he might be willing to do that. His uh, contract actually has an out he could take. He could actually void the whole thing and say, I'm going to be a free agent now if he wanted to. doesn't sound like he's going to pull that trigger, uh, but he has the option to, and so that negotiation is going to get a little bit weird. Um, But I I think you can maybe get him to take a pay cut, uh, if not, you would save a lot of money. Uh, Linval Joseph also saves you a lot of money if you were to cut him. He's going to be 32, and a 32-year-old nose tackle that kind of declined at the end of the season it has some of the hallmarks of somebody you might want to you know, let go as a cap casualty. Yeah, that was my next question about Linval. Uh, he's been really good for the Vikings, but he's starting to age. He's starting to age, right. and uh, he's not uh, – the defensive tackle he was three, four years ago. Um, my question is, do they have his replacement on the roster or are they going to have to either sign or draft someone pretty early? Um, I think at the defensive tackle position, they have to sign someone regardless because they got really poor defensive tackle play this year, and it really affected the the status of that defense. A lot of the defensive regression that we saw really stemmed from a lack of push up the middle and, and, you know, an ability to run on the Vikings up the middle down the stretch. And that's Linval Joseph and that's Shamar Stefan, and I think you need to inject something new into there. Now, Armin Watts is a sixth-round rookie from, uh, I want to say, Wyoming, Um, and he was – a pretty big revelation. He had a good preseason. He came in and actually was disruptive in a rotational role. It looked a lot like kind of, you know, rookie year of Fadio Denebo or rookie year Stephen Weatherly, somebody that could kind of be a part of this. Now, can he start? I don't think you'd, you'd anoint him with it. I, I think you'd bring in some kind of competition. But I think that he enters camp with a chance to be a starter, but he'll, he'll have to beat someone out to do it. And so, yeah, I think that they'll get at least one defensive tackle some somewhere in the draft or free agency, maybe even two. Uh, is it likely that that uh, Linval's played his last down with the Vikings? It's definitely possible. Um, I think for if I were managing the team, I would definitely have let him go. Not because I don't think he's been good here or anything. He's been phenomenal for the last five years. Um, but there are some telltale signs when a defensive lineman starts to get old and that projects forward very poorly. The Linval Joseph we would see in 2020 doesn't really match the Linval Joseph we saw in say 2017 or 2018 or even the early parts of 2019. He still had some great games. That's probably, those days are probably over and he's way too expensive to hang on to. So if you need to make some cap space, which the Vikings do, getting a little bit worse at nose tackle and getting a little bit younger at nose tackle is a, a decent way to do it. Um, my uh, next question is moving on to the coaching staff. Uh, they lost Kevin Stefanski to the Browns, and uh, they let go. They didn't pick up uh, the contract of uh, George George Stewart. Am I uh, George Edwards? Or, George Edwards. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, there's rumors that maybe Adam Zimmer could become the defensive coordinator and and possibly right. uh uh 
Clint Kubiak maybe as the offensive coordinator with his dad looking over his shoulder. Right. Uh, How do you foresee this uh, shaping up? Do you think they'll stay in house at at these positions? And I I know a lot of Vikings fans wanted uh, Pat Shermer to come back, but he went to the Broncos. So that's, and I, I think that was probably for the best. Um, I agree what, with that. What What do you think is going to happen if you had to guess? Yeah, so the reporting has all kind of pointed toward the Vikings looking internally. I think they're very happy with how the, the team was coached in 2019, and they want to rock that boat as little as possible. And it's really difficult when you're losing a bunch of coordinators because they all want to go find greener pastures and opportunities they wouldn't get, right? That's why George Edwards, uh, it, it was a mutual parting of ways. I think George Edwards wants to go somewhere where he can call plays. Obviously, Kevin Stefanski is going and pursuing a head coaching opportunity. Those are better opportunities than the Vikings would ever be able to afford them. Um, but they're very happy with how things were coached and they want to keep it in house for defensive coordinator. It's really Adam Zimmer and Andre Patterson because the defensive backs coach, Jerry Gray also left. Um, and I think Andre Patterson has a better resume, but Adam Zimmer is the son of the coach. And sometimes that matters a little more than it should. (laughs) Uh, but either way they'll, they'll keep the coaching and the scheme and the terminology and all that stuff as consistent as possible. So you don't have to spend a bunch of time in training camp, learning new words and new terminology. In fact, very famously on the offensive side of the ball, Kevin Stefanski didn't make the Kubiaks adopt his own terminology. He learned how to communicate in the Kubiaks language when it comes to what to call plays and what to call routes and all that stuff. And and he said, you know, hey, I'm not going to make four people learn something new. I'll just learn something new. So the Kubiak mm-hmm. terminology is already installed in that offense. And the guy who was new to it is the guy who left. So it, we'll see what we lose with Kevin Stefanski. And we'll see what he was, what specifically he was contributing to that offense. I would imagine we're going to lose plenty of significant smarts. He was a smart guy. Um, but keeping in-house, I think Clint Kubiak as offensive coordinator is a good bet. That's probably the odds-on favorite. I don't mind the idea of Rick Dennison either. He's been the offensive coordinator under all of the Gary Kubiak staff, so they might just go to what they know. Um, But either way, the coaching and the scheme and the way that that the team is led by that staff is going to shake up as little as the Vikings can possibly make it. Okay. Um, My my last question, then I'll let you go. how far do you uh, sign Kirk Cousins to an extension, or do you draft a quarterback and have him sit a year? What what what's your plan of attack for the quarterback position? Well, that's really option A and option B, isn't it? And and this seems like a really mm-hmm. good year to need a quarterback. There's a lot of good ones in college, and not only the guys that'll be well out of the Vikings' reach, like Joe Burrow, the, the Bengals won't. Uh, won't trade out of that position and they'll take him and to a Taglavia, he's um, he's going to be long gone but there are other guys like Justin Herbert and Jordan Love and guys that you know would maybe fall to that that first round so if you wanted that, that 25th pick so if you wanted to draft a quarterback and have him learn behind Kirk Cousins you'll probably have an opportunity to do so so then it becomes are we happy with Kirk Cousins for the foreseeable future or do we want our options? And, and I, personally, I'm a big fan of option B. I've never been a huge Cousins fan. I, he had a great year in 2019. We'll see if that's sustainable. 
Uh, but even if Kirk Cousins is, is an MVP in 2020 and we don't re-sign him, well, we'll just extend him then, and then you have a rookie quarterback that everybody's probably really excited about, and you can trade him away to somebody and, and recoup some of that value. So it, it seems like drafting a quarterback and not, not extending Kirk Cousins is going to be the thing that sets you up most flexibly for the future uh, and gives you a chance to have more options. And, and if you really do end up staying with Kirk Cousins after doing all that work, the punishment for doing that is pretty minimal. So I, I'm definitely a fan of, of let him play in a contract year and draft a guy. Yeah, I, that, that, that's kind of where I'm at. And uh, all right, Luke, I want to thank you for making the time for me. So I always sure appreciate it. We'll have to sure do thing. this around draft, around draft time and uh, see where we're at. Yeah, of course. All right. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. No problem. All right. You have a good day. One lowercase letter, one uppercase letter, one number, be at least eight characters long, different than my last password. It's the password changing stuff at work is hard. Can you help out? Yes, I can help you all with the password. I have a very easy way to remember my password, and it's a favorite Bible verse that I have. And what is that? Philippians 4.13. I had a lot of troubles in my life, and to remember that Christ is always on my side, and you can do anything with Christ, and when I am struggling throughout the day, I have my favorite verse off to the side of my computer, so it's a good reminder for the day. At 
trafficking recruiting happens on social media. ATIS programming is brought to you in part by Learning RX, helping people of all ages learn easier, think faster, and perform better. Learning RX targets the root cause of learning struggles. With nine metro locations, more at learningrx.com slash ATIS. Set Apart Conference for Women is a proud sponsor of ATIS. Set Apart 2020, Rest for Your Soul, features keynote speakers, Crystal Evans-Hurst, and Allie Worthington. This is a faith-filled conference designed for women like you. So invite your friends now to the Set Apart Conference, Friday, March 6th and Saturday, March 7th at UNW St. Paul. Tickets available at setapartconference.com. was uh, when we were here 20-some years ago that Ted Williams lived right over the fence here in Isle Morada so he could fish every day in the winter and then in the summer he would go to Nova Scotia and fish. He was one of the great fishermen of all time. Hello, Kevin. This is Kevin Gorg. How are you? Well, Kevin Gorg, Chad Smith here. How's things? 
good. Can you hear me okay? I've got the hands-free thing going in my car. I hope you can hear me okay. Oh, no, loud and clear. All good. Oh, good. All good. good. Oh, okay. Here we come in three, two, one. Switching topics next on Minnesota Sports Weekly. Time to talk about what's going on on the ice lately. Minnesota Wild Hockey with Kevin Gorg of Fox Sports North. And first of all, uh, Kevin, boy, it's nice to catch up. It's been a while. It has been a while. It's always fun to chat hockey, even though right now the season is not going the way we wanted to for the Minnesota Wild. There's still time for them to turn it around, but it was very promising from November through the end of December, but January has not been kind to our no, no doubt about it. And and maybe start there with the positive, I guess, first of all. November through December, they were one of the highest scoring teams in hockey, if I understand that right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were playing some exceptional hockey. Yeah, I think everyone who follows the team kind of talked about it, that we didn't see it coming, number one. Uh, number two, we didn't know if it could last. And not that they're not worthy of playoff consideration. I, we always thought if this team was going to be in the top eight in the West, they would do it with goaltending and defense. You know, the, the firepower up front probably doesn't match up with some of the elite teams in the National Hockey League, but we thought they could defend. We love their blue line, and their goaltending has been good for years. So that's what caught us by surprise. They were doing it with offense. They were outscoring hockey teams. But if you really break it down and look at who the Minnesota Wild are, that was probably not going to be a template for success long term. And now it's caught up with them because the goal scorers – goal scoring has gone dry and now when you get into situations where you're being asked to play from behind uh, it's, it's a tough way to make a living in this league. We saw it in Pittsburgh the other night where Pittsburgh got the early lead and even though the Wild got back within 4-2 it's very difficult in this league to always be down a goal or two and be chasing the game. Well I wanted to ask you about that uh, Pittsburgh game. Could we have timed that any worse just from the simple fact that uh, the team was, uh, the other team was obviously excited about getting Sidney Crosby back, and I think the man showed why he's a uh, first ballot Hall of Famer when he retires. Yeah, for my money, um, he's one of the best five hockey players I've ever seen, and right now yeah. he's certainly one of the best two or three players in this league, and you're right about uh, the timing of the whole situation. He had been out for nine weeks, and if you've been to Pittsburgh or even watched Pittsburgh Penguin hockey, he is the hero of that town. And for him to come back, it's a home game. The crowd's amped up. The team is amped up. And then early on, the Wild allowed Crosby to get his mojo cooking. Now, you, you thought maybe there'd be some rust there with 87. Well, that was not the case. And he had a brilliant game with four points. And, you know, I thought it was funny. Bruce Boudreaux, the morning of the game, was joking with reporters when they asked about his thoughts about Crosby returning. He said, yeah, I can't wait to watch him. Maybe they can shoot up Mario Lemieux and he can join too. Because what coach in their right mind wants to see the comeback for, for Crosby after nine weeks and, and knowing that the Wild have been going through some tough times and maybe didn't have the most confidence, it was a recipe for disaster, and that's how it played out. Well, I saw some of the reports uh, after the game wrapped up last night. Was there something that happened? And I only bring it up because I, I didn't quite understand what they were talking about with the lineup before the game. Yeah, what a mess. You know, it, it, you know what happened? We talked about it again today. So every team in the league, home and away, has a lineup card that they fill out and turn in right before faceoff. And on that right. lineup card, you have two goalies and 18 skaters. And whoever you list on that lineup card are the only 20 players that you can dress and play that particular night. Now, at home, it's really easy because 
you hand that card in, and the officials kind of at home will double-check it, the local officials, to make sure it matches up. On the road, you're on your own. And so Bruce filled out the card in the morning, as he always does, after morning skate. Then they took a look at it in the afternoon, and for whatever reason, Ryan Donato, who's the first number, the lowest number, as you number it from lower to higher at the bottom of the list, was on mm-hmm. there, and Greg Pattern was not. And that did not match with the lineup that they were going to you know, deploy for the game. So they get to the bench. They're about ready to drop the puck. It's on national TV, on NBCSN. And the officials all of a sudden cross-reference the numbers on the bench and the ice with the numbers on that, on that card. They don't match up. So Pattern has to go to the locker room, take his gear off. He's out. And Donato, who had just had a burger, was getting ready to go to the press box and watch the game, puts his gear on, and now they have an extra forward, and they're down a defenseman. You talk about, I mean, again, timing in Pittsburgh against Malkin, Crosby, Hornquist, and this great offensive hockey team. Now you've got 5D. Um, yeah, it was a mistake that Bruce had never made in 25 years. And like he said today at practice, he'll never make it again because he felt awful. Well, in his defense, I, I, I guess we should probably mention, I was cruising through some articles, in fact, just a short time ago, uh, Mike Russo of The Athletic pointed out that this is not the first time in the NHL that mistake's been made, right? No, it's not. And, and, and when it's happened, it's happened on the road because you don't have those home officials to kind of help you along the way yeah. if, you've, if you've made an error in judgment. And let's be honest, you do this, well, with preseason and playoffs 90 to 100 plus times a year, it becomes mm-hmm. a little monotonous. But, it, you know, I used to coach high school hockey here in Minnesota and they had the same rules where you had to fill out that sheet. And, and, and for a while there, I'm like, why are we doing this? But now I get it, especially yeah. when you have extra players in place. And at any level, uh, you've got you to have everybody kind of double-check and triple-check that list because you feel bad. Number one, Greg Patteron's got to take his gear off. It's, it's a horrible experience for him. And then number two, as a head coach, you're putting your team in a bad spot early in that hockey game. When Matt Dumba takes a penalty, now you're down to, to four defensemen. So mm-hmm. it, it was a real shame that it happened, and the timing could not have been worse. And, you know, today, you know, Bruce was very honest after the game. He took the blame, came back today. The media circled around. He took the blame. He apologized to the team last night. Bill Guerin, the GM, came down to talk to him, and, and really, from what Bruce told us today, handled it very, very well, was supportive of, of Boudreaux and said, hey, we're going to move on. It's not that big a deal. And I think that, you know, moving forward, I hope that last night can be kind of the bottoming out, you know, because today they yeah. gave the team the day off. They had some meetings. They went over film. They didn't touch the ice. And, you know, hockey's a game where, you know, being around the guys, they take the losing hard. And sometimes you're not physically fatigued, but mentally you can get a little bit tired of thinking about it. So today was a day where they sent them home and said, go have some fun, have, you know, see your friends, see your family, see your kids, come back refreshed for morning skate tomorrow and let's get ready to take on the Tampa Bay Lightning, one of those games where if you don't beat the Lightning, nobody's surprised, but if you do, it can jumpstart kind of the the, the last push here before the All-Star break. Well, and there's a long way to go in the season yet, right? We're not getting down to the stretch run by any means, but where does this team begin to to kind of get this thing going the way we want it to go? They've got to get back to their roots. They've got to get back to basics. They've been trying to do too much. They've been trying to play a game that they're not going to be able to have success playing. And maybe all that offense they put up in November and December has been a double-edged sword for them. They've got to get back to being a much better team in front of the house. They've got to be a more responsible team, back-checking, a better team in the defensive zone coverage. They've got to take less penalties, and they've got to be better on the penalty kill. This is a team that's built from the back end out. Devin Dubnik 
you know, I know there's been some distractions and tough situations at home with his wife, but, you know, he's got to be the rock back there along with Alex Daylock. And really, if you look at this team and break down this roster, this core of defensemen is as good as any you'll find in the National Hockey League when you talk about the top four the Wild can put out there on a night to nightly basis. But they haven't played that way and consistently mm-hmm. played that way. And then the forwards have got to be a better group. And they've got to try to start winning games 3-2 to two rather than winning games 5-4 to four, and winning games by scoring early and shutting teams down, being disciplined, being good without the puck. These are the things that have really, I think, gone away here in the last three or four weeks. They've got to get back to who they really are. The thing about the Wild, though, and again, I'm not an elite hockey mind, but as I look up and down the roster, as I watch them play, not as closely as you do, but still, I I look at their roster, I don't see any standout scoring on this team. Is is it more of a, a by-committee approach kind of thing with this squad then? Well, you don't see a Crosby. Uh, you don't see a McDavid or a Dreisaitl or a Taylor Hall. What you do yeah. have, though, is you've got players like Zach Parise, who's on pace for 30 goals. You've got players like Jason Zucker, who should be a 25-30 to 30 goal scorer. You've got a guy like Eric Stahl, who represents the Wild at the All-Star Game in St. Louis later this month who's on pace for 25 to 30 goals. So you don't have that 40 or 50 goal guy that you're talking Mm -hmm. about, but you do Mm -hmm. have two or three guys that should be 25 to 30 goal scorers. And then if this team was ever going to be a playoff team this year, you look at that core of young players, you look at Greenway, you look at Fiala, Jewel Erickson, Donato, that group, a couple of those players had to rise up and Kevin Fiala and Luke Cunning have made those strides. They look like players especially Fiala, that could be another 20 or 25 goal score. The part for me that's been tough is you want to see Jordan Greenway do more and yeah. be more, that big power forward. You want to get more out of Jewel Erickson because, you know, as that center goes, you know, that's a really important position in hockey. It really, the middle of the rink is where it all begins up front. And he's been good. He just hasn't been great. And so, and then you look at Arask, you look at some of those other players that are asked to kind of step up and, through this stretch, they've been invisible. They've got to get back. Mm-hmm. Everybody chipping. This can't be a one-line team on any particular night because whoever they're playing, and we'll use Tampa as the next example, their their front line, their top line is going to be better than the Wilds line no matter what. you got to hope yeah. that that X line can shut them down and either one of your top couple lines can step up and steal your hockey game. But, you know, it goes back to the good team defense. As a group, they have not been good enough without the puck and in their own end. And they're just going to have to get back to playing the game the right way. And I think, you know, hitting the refresh button today after that tough loss last night, giving up seven goals could be the wake-up call this team needed. Well, I'm curious. Uh, Kevin Gorg, Fox Sports North, is with us. You had mentioned Jordan Greenway, and I watched this guy play hockey, and his physical tools just absolutely hypnotized me at times. Uh, He can look like a freight train other times, for lack of a better word, he can look like a bit of a train wreck. Uh, is he still trying to learn the game at this level, maybe? Yeah, I think he is. Last year was his first real full season of pro hockey. And with his time okay. in Iowa, including the playoffs, he played over 100 hockey games. So you really felt like that could be a really nice foundation to setting him up for better and bigger things this year. And as you mentioned, it, there's been games where we've seen the flashes. For a oh, yeah. guy his size, he's got really good hands. He's got good offensive instincts. But he just is unable to stretch it out to four or five games in a row consistently at that high level. He'll have a game, he'll have a couple of shifts, and then he'll just disappear. And he hasn't been good without the puck. Last night in Pittsburgh, 
There was a back check on one of their goals earlier that hockey game where he got lost. And you can't mm-hmm. have that right now if you're Jordan Greenway. They're asking him to do an awful lot. And I think for, for Jordan, it's still a part of the process. He's still a young man in his early 20s. But now with all these games under his belt, especially all the games he played last year, you hope yeah. at some point that there can be that next step, like we've seen with Tunnin and like we're seeing right now with Kevin Fiala. With a guy that size, you never want to give up on him. But I, I know the coaching staff believes that there's a lot more in the tank for, uh, for big number 18. You referred uh, earlier to Devin Dubnik. I was curious what this season's been like for the Wild goaltender. You mentioned he's got some unfortunate distractions at home. His wife's got some uh, health problems they're having to deal with. How's he holding up through all that? You know, he's been really great to work with. Devin is one of those players I've always enjoyed just sitting and talking with, and uh, I've had a chance to get to know him really well since he came here in 2015. And, you know, he's been pretty upfront and candid that it's been hard on everybody. You know, they've got – Three young kids, uh, I think, mm. they're under the age of seven right now at home. And oh, wow. you know, when you're in your 30s, and, and his wife Jen is as well, and you're dealing with this type of uh, serious illness and, and having to go to the Mayo Clinic and having to be away from the hockey team, I'm certain it's been very hard. And I know he hates being away from the team. He's, he's uh, one of those personalities that meshes really well uh, with the guys in that room. And so I know it's been difficult for Devin to, to miss games and to be away from his buddies on the team. And so it's, it's been a process. It's been a learning experience, and I think it's still ongoing. It was really cool to see his wife and kids and, and all his family there the night uh, a couple weeks ago when they celebrated his 500 games in the league. And that, that mm. celebration actually had to be postponed a couple times because of his wife's illness. And so to have them all there and to see how great his wife looked and to see the smile on Devin's face, it was a game that Staylock was starting, so there wasn't as much pressure on him, and he could yeah. just really enjoy the moment. I know that meant a lot to him, and the crowd, as always in St. Paul, gave him so much love. The, the crowds, the Wild fans, really have, have learned to love Devin Dubnik, and so they were able to show him last night that they still love him very much. They support him, and I'm sure that felt really good for him. Looking ahead to the All-Star break and the rest of the season, I was kind of curious. Um, we've got a new general manager in Bill Guerin this year. Is he still kind of sizing up as, uh, what he's got on the roster? Are there potential moves ahead in the not-too-distant future, uh, either as buyers or sellers? Uh, what's your gut tell you? Well, for a long time, I thought we were going to be buyers. And now, with where we are in the standings, eight points out, I think that is still an ongoing process for Bill Guerin. What I've been so impressed with for a mm-hmm. first-time general manager is his patience. And maybe that came out again last night with the kerfuffle with the lineup card. There's no panic to this guy. And maybe it's the fact that he's got four Stanley Cups already in his hip pocket, you know, two as a player, two as an assistant GM in Pittsburgh. But he's a guy that really likes to let things play out. And so I would not be surprised if it came right down to the deadline and he has to decide at that point what type of moves he can make. But but truthfully, I've been really impressed. And if you're Bill Guerin, you look at this team right now, all these coaches were coaches that you inherited. All these mm-hmm. players were players that you also inherited. So, yes, I think day by day, game by game, I think Bill Guerin is looking at this and trying to figure out what this team needs to do to get to where the team he just left in Pittsburgh is. You look at that team in Pittsburgh, and you look at the injuries they've had this year and the level they've played at. Bill Guerin was a part of that. He's a winner. He knows exactly mm-hmm. what these teams need, and I think – He's the type of guy that spends time getting to know the players. They had that retreat in Aspen at the start of the year. 
he's had a chance to have one-on-one conversations with all the movers and shakers, coaches, players, trainers, you name it. This guy has had that conversation numerous times. So I think Bill Guerin's taking a look at this and trying to assess every single spot in that roster. But I, I got to tell you, I think he'll do something. I don't think he'll sit on his hands. Whether they're buyers or sellers, it doesn't matter. I think he'll make some moves. And I think if you're Bill Guerin in the Minnesota Wild and you know you've got that Russian kid waiting in the wings that we all believe and he believes will be here next year, um, you have to take a look at the top six forwards you have right now and you probably have to make room for that kid in that spot. So, yeah, I think at some point he'll make a couple of moves. But knowing Bill Guerin, he's a patient man. He's a, a very calm man, and he knows what he wants to do. He's got a lot of – he exudes confidence when you're around him. So I think he'll take his time and make uh, the choices he believes are right for this team for next year. Last one, I wanted to have you touch on that Russian kid that I hear people talking about. I really don't know much more about the fact about him than the fact that he's Russian and he can play some pretty good hockey. Tell me about this guy. Well, Kirill Kaprasov is uh, the leading goal scorer in the KHL, and I think when when you when you look at the highlights, it's always difficult to try to translate what he's doing over there and say how would that fit in in the National Hockey League. And you know, Bill Guerin and his staff have gone over to Russia. They've met with him. They've watched him in person, and they liked what they saw. In fact, Bill Guerin came back and said he knows there'll be pressure and there'll be some growing pains, but this kid can step in and can play right now at the National Hockey League level and do mm-hmm. so in a top-six role. So that, that gave us all confidence. Now the, the trick is to get him here, and we all assume he's coming, but you have to wait until it actually happens. And so yeah. um, he's going to be at the All-Star game over in the KHL. He's having a great season. He's healthy. He's scoring. He's a phenom. And I know there'll be a ton of buzz here next year in St. Paul if the Wild are able – to secure him and lock him down, but that's still ongoing. And until, you know, all of us, you know, that follow the team are excited, but until he actually gets here, all we can do is stay on social media and watch for those highlights to come because it is something (laughs) we all look forward to. The kid has awesome hands. He can, he can score from almost anywhere. And so that, that type of skill still translates for me. And I think when he gets here and you saw it with Mikhail Granlin to a point, um, there's probably more buzz around this player than there was in Finland around Grandland, but you know certain players see things and do things at a different level. And that's the point that Bill Guerin made when he came back from Russia is this kid's got the it factor. And so I think wild fans are really going to enjoy him. Now we just got to get him here. Absolutely. All right, sir. Listen, I'm not going to keep you any longer, but I always appreciate and enjoy talking hockey with you. And I hope we can do it again. I'd love to, and I hope the next time we talk, the Wilder on the top eight in the West, and we're starting to figure out which team they're going to match up with in the playoffs. That's still a possibility, and I'm keeping the faith. All right. Uh, I will not argue with that at all. Kevin Gord from uh, Fox Sports North. Thank you, sir. We'll be in touch. Take care, guys. You bet.